Do you feel that in a time when we are more connected than ever, we are drifting away from real human connections, especially to ourselves? I do. Hi, I'm Leticia Latino, and I want to invite you to join me and my very inspiring guests in exploring ways to reconnect to your essence, to your definite purpose, to what makes you tick. Are you ready? Hello and welcome to a new episode of Back to Basics, Reconnecting to the Essence of You. I want to welcome Mady's Villa today. She's the former Global Head of International Business Development at Vigoro, a 750 million international agribusiness company. She's also the former head of regulatory policy for Nortel Networks, where we actually met many years ago, former secretary and CEO of the Florida State Department of Administration, and former assistant secretary and CEO of the U.S. Department of Agriculture. There's so much experience here. In 2003, Adis retired from her position as the first chief diversity office at the U.S. Air Force Academy and founded Villa & Associates, which is her own consultancy, focused on helping clients build diverse leadership and foster an inclusive organizational culture. Having said that, hello, Edis. Nice to have hello. you. Hello, Leticia. Thank you for that very nice introduction. I, I just wanted to uh, maybe correct the bio that I, that I shared with you. I retired in 2013, not 2003. Oh, I'm sorry. I just said 2003. Man, I retired you a long time ago then. <laughs> yes. That's a very valid correction. So thank you for that one. And just a note for our listeners here. I mean, we've known each other for a long time, but it was just recently that we reconnected at an event. I shared this story because my followers know this very well, that I I'm a big Gloria Stefan fan, and at the beginning of the year, I share how I met her the first time, and then I wrote about her a second time at the beginning of the year, and there was that event at UM that I went, and not only did I see Gloria again and took my picture, but I reconnected with you who were always there, also yes. there. And, you know, it's interesting because I, too, have a Gloria story. When I was the um, assistant secretary at the Department of Agriculture, I was asked to give a talk at an event of a uh, Latina women's organization to be the keynote speaker. And this was many, many years ago. I think it was like 1989. And Gloria was being given an award at that event. Now, 1989 was way before Gloria's uh, triumph yeah. as, as a global uh, star. And uh, during that evening, they sat us next to each other. Oh. And so, and so we were able to exchange uh, many, many stories. And of course, uh, like you, I'm extremely proud of all of her accomplishments and, and take great pride in everything she's done for the music business, but more importantly, for the Latino community. Absolutely. She's a total inspiration. And I don't surrender on my dream of having her on this podcast at some point, but I'm glad that she was the channel this time for us to reconnect and for you to have uh, graciously accepted to be on, uh, on the podcast. I admire you from our times at Nortel, and I think it would be 
a great conversation because you also represent something that's uh, very dear to to Miami and the community here. And I always start with childhood and, and, and asking for my guests to talk about their childhood. And I know you're a Cuban refugee, that's correct? Yes, uh, my mother and I came in 1962 as uh, political refugees. Uh, this was the time when the Castro government would keep one or the other parent as, uh, as a way of having people return to Cuba because they would be miserable, you know, when he would break up the families. But of course, uh, 99% of the time, people just lived in the misery, missing their father or their mother. But of course, they didn't return because, I mean, the whole reason they left was because the regime uh, was so bad. So my father took that decision that uh, he would send my mother and I, and of course the Castro government kept him. And the very day we left, he lost his house, his car, his job, his rationing card, and of course his wife and his daughter. Wow. Yeah. So um, my mom did, I think, a pretty good job having never worked before and with no uh, family support system in Miami. To, um, to begin to work in one factory after another. We lived a very, very humble first uh, five, six years. And I think she did a pretty good job trying to make ends meet. And I grew up very, very fast. I, I imagine that's so inspiring. And, and I mean, that, that deserves a podcast on itself. I, I maybe should do that with all the stories of amazing people that I know, like yourself. I have so many... Cuban friends here in Miami and and of course the situation touches dearly to any Venezuelan that is here like me so we, you guys have been always a big support and uh, hearing the stories and seeing what they have achieved and people like you have achieved that uh, it's so inspiring so you're you definitely had a really rough start and at eight, I think I read, you arrive in Miami. What were your, let's say your escapes? I imagine you had very painful memories of what you left behind, leaving your dad behind. But as a child, what gave you solace? Where, what were you doing for fun or, or to entertain yourself? Yes. Well, you know, two things uh, I often think about. One is that expression, latchkey kid, you know, I was a latchkey kid, and I didn't even know that there was an expression. Well, I, I didn't know. I'm learning it with you, so please explain it to me. <laughs> well, the, the latchkey kid expression relates to children who are left to fend for themselves. Okay. And uh, basically, a parent puts a string around the child's neck with a key so that the child can get himself or herself uh, back home, you know, after school. Well, I was such a kid before that expression came into vogue. My mother would put uh, a string with a key around my neck and send me off to school. And I would come home long before she did because she had to rely on public transportation. And of course, any opportunity to work overtime, you know, she felt compelled to take because obviously it was more money. So the other expression that always comes to mind for me is, the village. It takes a village. Well, I was raised by a village myself because since my mother had to go to work and I had no siblings and no other family, the neighbors were my village. And so I fondly remember one of my neighbors named Lucy. She was a nurse at Jackson Memorial Hospital. 
And she would get home around 3.15, which is when most children of that age, you know, 8, 10 years old, would get home. And she made it a habit almost every day to go over my homework with me, and especially my spelling words. Because, of course, my mom didn't speak English and, and didn't have time. By the time she got home, she had to cook dinner and then put me to bed. So Lucy would always go over my spelling words. And I always remember that in fourth grade, when I barely spoke English, I learned my vocabulary so, so very well that I immediately was placed in the advanced uh, class for English-speaking children. And Lucy said to me, Today you're learning English, Adis, but in sixth grade, which of course at that time it felt like a very long time for me to be in sixth grade. Mm -hmm. She said, in sixth grade, you're going to win the spelling bee. Wow. Think think about that, what that does for a a young child. So we worked and worked and worked on my spelling bee. And I have to say, I was not the champion spelling bee for my sixth grade, but I came in second to Mary Nell Robertson, who I still remember that name. I don't know why I still remember that. <laughs> well, but, if Mary Nell listens to this, she'll be happy. She exactly. still remembers. Yes, but I share that story with your listeners for two reasons. One, the importance of young children and not so young children, like we adults too, to have a goal. And number two, to have your own fan base. Lucy was my fan base. She would, you know, congratulate me every week when I brought my homework and my spelling bee uh, results and so forth, and she would encourage me. And what that did for me as a young child was, you know, of course, now I can reflect on it because I didn't realize it at the time, but it was such a wonderful foundation of understanding that no matter our circumstance, if we work hard enough and we are steadfast in our goals that we can get ahead. And that's what Lucy and, and my other neighbors did for me. And I am forever grateful. Uh, that's that's amazing. And I, I'm sure that that defined you right there, right? That that kind of wisdom that they were sharing with you. You work hard and you're going to make it. And that's, I mean, for what I remember and seeing you, you were a very, very hard worker. Do you think that's something that, that you take with you for the rest of your life and that has defined who you are? Yes. Uh, Of course, my mom, you know, exemplified hard work because I saw her getting up very early and taking two and three buses to get to work and then taking two or three buses to get back uh, and then doing the housework and then raising me and all that. But also the neighbors, you know, I I lived in a working class neighborhood where everybody was doing, you know, two or three jobs and uh, trying to make the best for themselves and for their children. So you're absolutely right. What we experience as young people, uh, as children, and and then as teenagers, really mold our character, and it did for me. And and was a young eighties dreaming about something? Did you have a particular dream of becoming something, going somewhere, going back to Cuba? What do you recall as being maybe the dream of those years? Well, I used to tell people when I was even younger that I spoke French. And, and uh, that was very curious, my mom reminds me, because we lived in a very small town in Cuba, and she cannot remember anyone that I knew who spoke French. But in any event, I carried that with me, and I carried that to Miami, 
And as luck would have it, one of my other neighbors was French speaking. So I always wished and hoped that I would be able to travel. Travel to me at the time was the end all. And I was fortunate that the uh, librarian at my elementary school and my teachers were uh, always uh, very generous with their time and always gave me books to read that took place in different countries and the protagonists were children from different worlds and that I would be given these um, these wonderful books to read and, and to experience. Even, you know, even though I wasn't experiencing it by traveling to these places, I was experiencing it by reading about it. And that more than anything really propelled my interest in subsequent years into uh, international law and, and uh, international business and international relations. That's uh, two thoughts on what you just said. One, I'm almost sad, and I said it in the interview last week, that everybody that I've interviewed that has done so well, they all share a passion for reading, and they've all emphasized how reading was a defining thing that they did. And now seeing having small kids and seeing how much we struggle, and my son likes to read, but I can tell how these new generations, they take the whole reading very differently from our generations. And it's a little scary because as I hear all my guests saying the same thing, I'm thinking, oh my God, I wonder what's going to happen to my kids. Um, I hope they somehow the reading goes back into the, the youngsters, you know, into mm -hmm. their lives. Yeah. And then also to understand how things, how serendipity happens in all these stories and, and how you like French and then oh, all of a sudden you have someone that knows the language next to you. Yeah. That's also something that has repeated very often that people say, you know, if, if only you pay attention to what you want and how you can achieve it, it's right there next to you. Yes, I agree. I agree with that. But, you know, we, we make our luck. You know, that's why there's a saying that says, you know, the harder I work, the luckier I get. Yep, I've heard that. Yes. So I, I kept this uh, interest in, in French, but my mom, being the wise woman that she is, when I was in high school, she said, you know, you're going to take Spanish because you're Cuban and you must understand Cuban history and Cuban architecture and Cuban music and Cuban culture. And at the time, you know, they had advanced Spanish classes for Cuban children, not just the uh, pass me the meatballs, you know, dialogue <laughs> yeah. for, uh, for the non-English speakers. So I was very fortunate to take advantage of a, a five-level course about, Cu about Cuban history and so on and so forth. So I took Spanish in high school, but when I went to college and, and I did it on scholarships, The system was such that you could take as many courses as you could do. You didn't have to pay extra per course or anything like that. So throughout my my four years at Rollins, I took French as a as a fifth course in both the the fall and the and the spring, and that led to an anonymous donor paying for me to uh, to study with uh, to live with a French family and study French in France. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah, when I was still in college. And so I was able to perfect my French to such a degree that here it is 45 years later and I still speak French fluently. That's amazing. You know that we have that in common. You discovered these things. You know that I also had French as one of my goals and my dad always told me that I was losing my time wanting to learn French. 
<laughs> and I did, I learned like when I was 30, maybe 32. And I always say this, like people don't go and pursue their dreams because they say I'm too old. And I say, if I learn now, I'm 30. And if I'm lucky, I live until I'm 70. And I still have most half of my life to speak the language. And it has proven to be one of the best investment I made because it has served tremendously for work where I could not believe that it was going to be so valuable. So anyone listening out there, French is valuable. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think the, the, the equally, impo equally important point that you make is that none of us is ever too old to, one, be passionate about things, or two, to learn new things. I think that one of the most important things that parents can do for children and uh, leaders can do for their subordinates is fuel their curiosity because it's that curiosity that not only keeps us young, it keeps us alive, it keeps us motivated, it keeps us growing as, as employees, as, uh, as spouses, as friends. I mean, I look forward to seeing my friends when they come back from a trip. Why? Because I'm curious about their experience. I am always fascinated when I have uh, subordinates coming back from either conferences or vacations why? Because I am curious what they experienced. So I don't think you were too old at 30 to learn French. And, and in fact, there is no age to stop learning. Absolutely. No. And, and that's one of the purposes here is to inspire anybody listening with these stories and other people's stories as to say, if you want to go for something, just go do it. You know, it's a uh, Tomorrow is too late and uh, and start enjoying things you like to do and, and what keeps you exciting. So so you definitely went and pursue a career and study what you like, I take, which was law, right? Well, actually, um, in mathematics, my, my undergraduate degree is in mathematics. Okay. And the very first theorem that we talked about was one that says that the shortest distance between any two points is a straight line. And I always think about that because that is true in mathematics and it is true only in mathematics. <laughs> it is not true in life. In life, we go through life, never do we take the two shortest points to reach our goals. So although I majored in math, I then went to law, I then went to international law, eventually I got an MBA, and in between, I worked at the intersection of law, business, and policy. I don't see it as being, um, as having a lack of focus. I see it as having a very broad curiosity that led me to, uh, to pursue areas that I found fascinating and where I could make a difference. Oh, and it, it took you to a lot of different uh, exciting places because I know... I also read that you were selected a White House fellow on the Premier Leadership Program in the U.S. So that's yes. quite amazing. Yes, and I want to plug, want to put in a plug for the White House Fellows Program because it was such a uh, life-changing experience for me. You know, as we talked about before, in 1962 I was a political refugee. In 1982 I was working in the uh, Ronald Reagan White House for Elizabeth Dole. Where in the world can one be a political refugee and 20 years later be walking the corridors 
of the White House. Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah, that's why the U.S. is a great nation. Yes. I applied for that White House Fellows Program thanks to a woman uh, who was looking to intern at the law firm where, um, where I was already working as a young lawyer. And Elaine said to me, you really should apply for this program. You are exactly what they're looking for. And I smiled and said, okay. But I think the lesson there is that whether we know it or not at the time, what people perceive about us is oftentimes a very good indication of things about ourselves that we may not know about ourselves. They may see it before we do. So even though I was 26 and a, and a young lawyer just starting out, Elaine, Elaine was younger than me because she was still in law school. She could see in me that which really has, I, I like to say, underlined my entire life, which has been service to others, either through public service or not-for-profit work. I didn't know that about me nearly as well as Elaine could see. And so for your listeners, I share this because oftentimes we don't take advantage of um, questioning the people that are close to us who could have those insights and about us and share those insights and help us as we are trying to decide what to do next with our careers. And so it's free help out there. You know, oftentimes we'll hire a coach or we'll go to a, to a boss or something like that. But we often have people, peers, our own friends, who know things about us and who can tell things about us. And we're hesitant to go to them and say, you know, what do you see in me that makes me special? If I had not had Elaine, I might not have applied for the White House Fellows Program. I might not have even heard about it. But he or she was someone who thought of that program for me. So your listeners should look up the White House Fellows Program and see who in their lives they think ought to apply for it. That's fantastic advice. Um, you know, the fact that you were curious, because I think that brings it to full circle. And I can identify myself also in one moment that was pivotal into me going one direction or going the other. And I know who that person was, and I'm forever thankful. But I caught on that, and you caught on that. But I see sometimes people getting those opportunities, and they're so distracted with what they're doing in their day-to-day -day life that they just miss it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that's one of the things that Back to Basics wants to do is going back to basics and, and trying to stay connected to those little things that spark. And I'm sure that when she said something, it sparked, you know, that little fire in you saying, hmm, maybe I should check this out. Not losing that spark, I think it's uh, one at least of my main objectives. But, but the other part, and I want to give the kudos to Elaine was at that time, this was 1981, there was no internet and so forth. And so the White House Fellows Program then came in a brochure and, uh, and, and it, it only was mailed, I believe in August and you applied by the end of December. Elaine followed up, had the catalog sent to me and I received it in August. That initial conversation with Elaine was actually uh, in Washington on my way to Europe where I had gone to develop business for my law firm. 
So if Elaine had not followed up, even though I was curious about it, perhaps nothing would have become of it. So the second lesson in, in my story is that when you observe this characteristic or this beauty in someone that you want to help by letting them do something special, don't just tell them once, follow up. Let's give Elaine credit for following up. She had the catalog sent to me. I think it's so important because often we want to help others. We identify something that we can do for them, but we don't follow up. And it's not that the other party may not be curious. They may be very curious, but it may be easier for us because we know the program or we know of the opportunity or we know the hiring authority at that potential job opportunity and we don't follow up. So we don't complete the cycle, if you will. And I would say Elaine did it right. She suggested it to me. And importantly, she followed up so that I would get the brochure in the mail, and then I could take it from there. Oh, wow. That's fantastic. Elaine sounds like someone I could also benefit from inviting to the show. She sounds amazing. I'm glad you had her in your life. Yes. We've talked about how many special things happen in your life and how you kind of stayed your course. Was there any moment where you had to face, you know, something not going your way and you had to stay true to who you were. And uh, I like if you could share, how, how do you keep moving, even in times where you think everything is going differently from what you expected? Yes, um, there have been more than one, but I'll share one. When I came back to Miami uh, after Nortel, I uh, became the vice president and, and head of legal at Miami-Dade College. And I was there but a year when I saw a lot of things that I didn't think were proper. And I actually blew the whistle. It was a very difficult time in my life because, well, because the, of the institution and so forth. A lot of people who I would have thought would have been supportive were not. And so I, I learned a lot about myself. I learned a lot about other people. The most important thing I learned is that I will always do the right thing, no matter what the consequences. And the consequences in that case were somewhat severe. But I know that for me, there is no more important characteristic in a leader than to have integrity. And I felt that my integrity was at stake and that I would protect my integrity no matter what the cost to my profession or to my advancement or even to my financial situation. And I did. And I blew the whistle. So oftentimes, uh, I don't recommend blowing the whistle uh, without giving it a lot of thought because it's a very challenging uh, way, of, uh, way of life. However, if you ever find yourself having to sacrifice your principles, I recommend blowing the whistle. So I, so I did. Well, that, that's, uh, I was going to ask you, was it all worth it? I imagine that any situation like that where your ethics, your integrity, the core of what you are, who you are, it's a question, you know. In theory, we all say, oh, I would do that. I would do this. But then the day comes and you have to go forward with what you said you were going to do. And, and it's hard. Yes, but, you know, it's not nearly as hard if you know who you are. Yeah, 
It, it makes it easy. I, I, I see what you're saying. <laughs> but it does, it does create uh, some issues for you, financial and otherwise. That's why when, when I, one of the things that I have been doing for the last five years is uh, serving as a professional speaker. I go around the country giving lectures at uh, corporations and at associations and employee resource groups and so forth at universities. And usually this question in one way or another comes up. And what I tell people is at the end of one's life, you want to be as close as possible to being able to say to yourself, I've lived a life of no regrets. And so what that requires one to do every day from when you're young until you die is to make decisions that are congruent, that are aligned with your values. And I believe that if you do that, no matter how difficult the time frame between having made that decision and your next job or however you proceed in your life, if you do that, then you turn around when you're 65 as I am now, and you can honestly say, I have lived a life of no regrets. Wow, that's fantastic. That's uh, very inspiring. I applaud you for that. And it's, uh, it's a high standard, but I think I try to be on the same path. I think uh, if something was to happen today, I always say, if something was to happen today, can I go happy? And I don't hold grudges. I try not to be, you know, have people that I don't talk to. You know, you talk to people and say, well, I haven't talked to my sister in like five years and at some someday. And then you say, well, if someday doesn't come, you know, for example. And so I also try to, to follow that. I say that uh, that advice is invaluable. Have you Uh, or can you think about something else? I always end my interviews asking what makes you tick. And if it has been a good interview, I think what makes the person tick is, is reflected all throughout the, the interview, right? So I can already see one few things that make you think. Is there anything else that really excites you and that really you say, wow, when I do this or when I think about this, this is, it reminds me who I am. Yes. Tying it back to your challenge with your children about reading. When I was in college, I think I was a sophomore, uh, I was given a book to read, a biography of a man named Algernon Sidney Sullivan. Uh, Mr. Sullivan had been a very well-regarded lawyer. He started the law firm Sullivan and Cromwell, which is a silk, stock, silk stocking law firm in New York still. His biographer, Ann Holmes, turned to Mr. Sullivan at one point as she was writing the book and said to him, Mr. Sullivan, you have had a, a career full of success, of your many accomplishments, for which do you wish to be remembered? And he said, not for anything that I have done, but for the number of lives that I have touched. I read that as a sophomore or junior at Rollins College. I underlined it. I've, I kept that book. Periodically, I reread his biography. And I have tried, sometimes with more success than others, to live my life that way. I want to be able to turn back and say, you know, I have touched many lives. And yes, I have been focused on my own professional success and, and so on and so forth. But at the end of the day, what gives me the most satisfaction, what has encouraged me to drive towards the future and 
break many glass ceilings has been my aspiration of doing so, so that other people, particularly other Latinas, don't have to work nearly as hard to get uh, to get ahead. Wow. Uh, you know, I, I can honestly say when you and I met, it was many years ago, and I remember you, you kind of remember me, I was very junior at Nortel, but you were you were doing something at that time that I, I say, wow, I admire you, I was impressed by you, and if anything, you touched my life at that point, because I don't know why, but I just knew who you were, and when I saw you at that glorious event, I just say, I have to say hi, and we reconnected, so definitely you're touching people's lives because if we barely knew each other and, and you make such an impression on me, I'm sure that uh, that impression is very strong on the people you're close to. And uh, I thank you for your time. You have been fantastic. I'm pretty sure our listeners are going to enjoy this very much. We're going to share 80s information in the show notes, so please check it out. She's uh, She does speaking, public speaking, so we're going to share all that beautiful information and also the book that you just share. I'm going to put a link there so that we can all be curious and go buy it and read it. So thank you, 80s, for your time and for being part of, of, of Back to Basics. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure. And until the next time. Mm-hmm.